Imagine, if you will, going to a theater to take in a play, and instead of being a passive audience member, you're recruited to be an active part of the production. Not just a part of the production, but invited to play a part on stage. You don't just sit and watch. You get up, you participate. Believe it or not, that is a thing. It's called immersive theater, and this is a phenomenon that is popular in England. Listen to how a British publication, an author in a British publication, describes what's called immersive theater. Her name is Anna Savoy, and she says of the experience, here's what immersive theater is. She says, you've gone for a night at the theater. Tickets presented, coats deposited, and you're ready to take your seat in the auditorium. Instead, you're herded into a room. You and the rest of the audience are sorted into groups and welcomed into a labyrinthine series of sets which form the stage. You are literally in the play, straddling the gap between audience and extra. You've been immersed in the world of immersive theater. Immersive theater has seen such a huge surge in popularity in the past decade. Once the preserve of visionaries, now it's almost a a theatrical mainstay. Part of the enduring and growing appeal is just this. The experience, good or bad, revolves around you. The viewer is no longer passive in immersive theater. They're at the center of the action. And that is very much what a new generation of theater goers are looking for. You are at the center of the action. And that is very much what a new generation of theater goers are looking for. Now the book we embark on today is a bit like a foray into immersive theater. Colossians beckons us not to sit on the side passively, but to participate actively in this life with Jesus. Instead of seeing ourselves as the center and the, 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 the spoke in which all the action takes place, we want to experience this immersion together to see Jesus at the center of who we are. Unlike immersive theater, the action does not all revolve around us. Instead, our goal is to see Jesus at the center of all that we do and all that we are. Our goal throughout this book is to fix ourselves on Jesus. This is something for all of us, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whoever you are, however you come. This book is not for us just to passively take in, but it's to us to immerse ourselves in. It's not so much that you and I are the center of the action, but we need to see Jesus as the center of our lives and have all of our lives revolve around him. All of us, without exception, must fix ourselves on Jesus. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you bored? Maybe for you, life just continues to unspool day after day after day, and the whole dance is just getting old. I invite you, Colossians beckons you to fix yourself on Jesus and come alive to a sense of purpose that you have never known. Are you disappointed? Perhaps you're just going through life And nothing about your life has turned out the way you thought it would. Your life seems to lack all color and excitement. Colossians beckons you to fix yourself on Jesus, who is incapable of disappointing you. 
Are you weary? Do you find that no sleep is able to give you the rest you need and want? Maybe you feel like you're just climbing a staircase with no end and no way off. I invite you, Colossians invites you to fix yourself on Jesus who gives rest to the weary, even in the midst of busy schedules. Maybe you would say, hey, I'm just doing okay. Nothing's great, nothing's amazing, things are fine. You don't want to rock the boat too much. You're comfortable not getting too high or too low, and your routine comforts you. Colossians beckons you, and I invite you to fix yourself on Jesus who offers something much better than just being okay. Maybe you're suffering this morning. Maybe the hot winds of affliction are blowing and battering against you, and you can't seem to find any shelter, and you feel like you're blown all over the map. I invite you, more than that, Colossians invites you to fix yourself on Jesus and see how he can protect you even in the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you find yourself aimless, just wandering through life. You have no idea what's next. If you had to put words to it, you're just a wanderer. I invite you, more than that, Colossians invites you to fix yourself on Jesus and find a solid direction. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're facing something bigger than you thought you would ever face, and you're terrified. Or maybe you're a person who just lives tempted by fear, knowing that something is going to jump out from around the corner and get you. I invite you, more than that, Colossians invites you to fix yourself on Jesus and find his strength in any circumstance. Maybe you are here and you're just hassled. You wish... You had 26 hours in a day. You have little kids, a busy schedule. You're busy at work. Life keeps badgering you, and you chase everybody around, and you don't have time even to be sitting here now. I invite you, more than that, Colossians invites you to fix yourself on Jesus and find peace, even in the midst of busyness. Maybe you're here, and you're just numb. You're past feeling anything anymore can't imagine making yourself vulnerable to anyone or even wishing to hope that things could be different. I invite you more than that. Colossians beckons you to fix yourself on Jesus and the safety he provides. Our first opportunity at this immersion experience is going to be in Colossians chapter 1 verses verses 1 through 14. We're going to consciously look to fix ourselves on Jesus. If I were to summarize the purpose of this passage in a brief sentence, it would be this. We who have faith in Jesus must do all we can to please Him. We who have faith in Jesus must do all we can to please Jesus. Colossians was written by a man named Paul from a Roman prison to a church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. The letter is ancient. The sentiment and the truth is not. Let's begin reading in Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 14. Follow along if you, if you would in your Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brothers, should read brothers and sisters, in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to to us your love in the Spirit. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray as we go into this sermon, but even as we walk into this book. Lord, we pray for Your blessing this morning. And on every day we preach this book, Lord, as we speak, as we preach this book, as we consider your word, I pray that you would speak to our church profoundly, significantly. I pray you would help us each to take an active role in the life you've called us to live and not sit on the sidelines. Awaken us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Two points this morning, continually thankful and constantly appealing. Continually thankful and constantly appealing. Remember, we're talking about how to please the Lord. Because of what He's done in us, we must do all we can to please the Lord. Look at verse 3. This is where we get the idea of continually thankful. This is what Paul tells the church at Colossae. He writes to them and says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. That's interesting because he thanks God for the work and the evidence of grace that these these people, this church, are, are exhibiting as they put faith in Jesus and the love they have for others. Paul is grateful not primarily for them, but what God has done in them. Faith in Jesus says more about Jesus than it does of the one putting faith in him. Paul sees that the faith they have in Jesus says more about Jesus, and it presses him to thank God. The clear implication is that our salvation and our hope says much more about what God has done in us rather than the faith we exert in God, and I am very glad for that. I'm glad. I'm glad. If my eternal destiny hung on how much or how well I believed or how much faith I had, I would be in trouble. I would be in a world of hurt, and you would too. But our destiny is not secured by the strength or the the amount of our faith, but 
the person we have faith in, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul specifically expresses gratefulness for the handiwork of the church in Colossae. That applies here to our church here in Gilbert, Arizona. He's grateful specifically for two things, your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Those are the two main markers of what it looks, what it looks like to be a Christian. If you were to take a picture of a disciple, a disciple is one that, that has faith, that professes faith in Christ, and the way that faith looks like, the way that faith is worked out in life is that they love all Christians, all the people in their church, and all, all the saints around them. This is a work of God. This is a miracle of God. Did you put faith in Christ? Yes, to be sure. But your faith is never as important as the one you put faith in. Jesus is your Savior. Carson says this, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was, a, was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a Savior. He sent us a Savior. We have a Savior that we can put faith in with no recrimination. This is not a character trait, but it's a miracle of grace. And those that put faith genuinely in Christ are going to care and love others more than themselves. All of this has been done by the message of the gospel. It was not won through hard work or robust obedience. It wasn't won by religious observance, doing more good than bad. It wasn't won by trying to be better. Verse 5 tells us where this came from, this power, this strength. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That is the news about Jesus Christ, the news that can change any person. Jesus, his, his life, death, burial, and resurrection is the news that God has opened a way for us to be able to avoid the just payment for our sins for any who trust in Jesus. That gospel had been preached to the Colossians. They believed. They had faith in him. That gospel is the gospel we believe in as well. This gospel is a word of hope, a message that Jesus has come to save the unworthy, the spiteful, the hateful, the cowardly, the vile, the ungodly, the dirty, the foul-mouthed, any who are willing to turn to him. That's the message they received. That's the message we received. The gospel is how Jesus worked, and it's how Jesus continues to work. Now notice... Before, we haven't, you might sit here and say, well, we're not talking about how to please him at all. Not yet. You said that was kind of what we were going to be shooting for. How do we please the Lord? Before we're called to do anything, Scripture always points us to what God has done for us first. Because subtly, if we focus more on what we're supposed to do and take for granted what God has done, subtly we can think that somehow, someway, we're earning something before God, and we're not. Before we're called to do anything, we see who we already are as Christians. And that forms the substance of Paul's continual thankfulness. Then he transitions to 
what he is constantly appealing for in verses 9 through 14. Here's the first step in pleasing the Lord. Verse 9. It's finding God's will for your life. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Of all the things he constantly prays for them, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That sounds wonderful. That's something we should pray for ourselves as well. That's something that applies to us today just as much. Now, normally when we talk about the will of God, we talk about big life-altering decisions. We talk about it with reference to things that will change the very focus and foundation of our lives. Things like, is it God's will for me to stay single or to get married? If it's God's will for me to get married, to whom should I get married? Should I continue to go to college? Should I stop going to college? Should I take that job? Should I go back to college? Should I live in that apartment or buy that house? How many kids should we have? Where should they go to school? Should I change careers? Am I in the right job? See, typically, we talk about God's will in those kinds of areas. And that's not wrong. But would it surprise you to know that the Scriptures nearly never talk about God's will like that? It's not wrong, but to know God's will means you know how to live day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Life has this mundane rhythm, and you can think that these small things don't really matter, but that you look to big things then, big life-altering decisions. Here's the reality. If you don't know how to please God day by day on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday afternoon, You won't make the big, life-altering decisions well at all. We need to ensure, that we need to understand that to please God, we must be filled with the knowledge of His will just to make it day by day. We don't just need to be filled with the knowledge of His will when it comes to big decisions, but daily ones, moment-by-moment ones, ones that we might not even think about. In 10 years, I'm probably not going to remember anything about Thursday. Was a day that nothing happened to me that was remarkable. Nothing happened to me that was memorable. But it's days like Thursday that I can't remember anything that I ate or really anything that I did. It's days like that that we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we understand how to live in days that you won't remember And if you understand how to live in those kind of days, then when it comes to big life-altering decisions, then they will make sense and you will be filled with the knowledge of His will. So why do we want to be filled with the knowledge of His will? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so when the Scriptures say walk, that just means how to live. We're not called to teleportation. We're not called to light speed travel. We're not called to a car race. It doesn't say so as to push the accelerator down, and, wa- and drive in a manner worthy of the Lord. No, it's walking. Aside from crawling or maybe rolling, it's the slowest way we get around. One foot in front of the other. And you need, I need, all of us need to be filled with the knowledge of His will just to be able to take the right next step today, tomorrow, and the day after. See, he's praying that we would be filled with the knowledge of God so that we might be able to pre- please the Lord with every step. That's our purpose. 
That's our purpose. How are we supposed to do that? The right question might be something like this. What does that kind of life look like? Typically, when we're called to do something, like please the Lord, be filled with the knowledge of Him, and please the Lord, Scripture tells us how to do that. So we're called to, we just keep reading, we keep reading. Here's how to please the Lord. Paul actually describes four different ways. How? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does the fully pleasing life look like? Looks like this, bearing fruit in every good work. What's God's will for you? Giving yourself to constant and tireless good works. What kind? Every kind. We're called to be fruitful and multiply in good works. If that sounds like an echo from Genesis chapter 1, it is. God told Adam to bear fruit and multiply throughout the earth. Instead, he failed and spread sin and death the world over. He turned from the Lord, his loving creator, and filled the land with sorrow and disappointment. But now, God is building a new humanity through Christ by the power of his gospel. And the people of whom we are now called to be a part are called to bear fruit in doing good works. What kind of good works? Every kind of good works that we can give ourselves to. Make no mistake, none of us are saved by good works, but we all must be convinced that we are saved to do good works for the fame and name of the Lord. We're not just saved so that we can go, okay, I'm good. When I die, I'm fine. We're saved to do good works and bring honor to the name of God. What kind of good works? Every kind you can think of. Kind, stuff like being compassionate toward the deserving and the undeserving alike. Being kind to all without exception. Overlooking sins committed against you. Refusing to take up an offense for someone else. Overlooking, over, uh, loving everyone without regard to whether they deserve it. Sacrificing time and comfort for the good of something else. Every kinds of good works consi- can, consist of forgiving others whether they ask for it or not. Using your tongue to build up and encourage and not to divide and tear down. Serving in areas of need in the church. Serving in areas of gifting in the church. Serving others in secret. Encouraging the downtrodden. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Protecting the weak. Sacrificial giving. What's God's will for your life? To be about every kind of good work. How we please the Lord? To be about every kind of good work. What else? Verse 10. Also increasing in the knowledge of God. What's God's will? How do we please the Lord? Be about every kind of good work. That's our purpose. That's our goal. Also, increasing in the knowledge of God. That doesn't need, we, we mean we need to learn new facts about God. <clears throat> it's good to be acquainted with the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. It's good to understand his aseity, his immutability, his authority, but that is not what Paul is pointing at here. Paul's talking about, when Paul talks about increasing in the knowledge of God, it means that your experience with God as your faithful father continues to transform who you are. This is knowing God over time. Something like, I've walked with God for years, and I know he's faithful. I can trust him. 
It's one thing to know facts about God. It's another thing to know God as faithful when you lie in a hospital bed or when you're faced with financial trials. When you continue to follow God and see him come through at times that are low, at times that are high, high through many dangers, toils, and snares, you grow in your knowledge of him. You experience him in different and new ways. It's like the story of Job in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Job, in a day, lost all of his children, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, everything but his wife. And he lost his wife's respect. In some ways, she said, curse God and die. He gained a clutch of rotten friends that did not provide much help or solace. And it was quite an ordeal. But as he walked through this ordeal, by the end, he realized that the Lord had sustained him all. He said to the Lord in Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you. You will make it known to me. And here's what I want us to recognize. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's the knowledge we're talking about. It's one thing to hear about God. It's another thing to know God as your shepherd in those moments that you didn't think you could take one more step. What's God's will for your life? How do you please Him? That you would increase in the knowledge of God for your whole life. That when you know discouragement, you know more that God sustains you. When you fall down, you know that God is the one who picks you up. When you fail, you know God is the one who always forgives. When you run away, you know God is the one who will always welcome you home. When you're disappointed, you know He is the one you can pour out your disappointments to. And know that He will always listen, listen with compassion. He is the one you can look back on your life two, three, four decades on and say, I have known the Lord. That is what it means to increase in the knowledge of God. And that is God's will for your life. You're called, we're all called, to be filled with the knowledge of His will so as to please Him in every good work, every kind of good work, called to increase in the knowledge of God. And also, we're called, thirdly, in verse 11, to be strengthened with all power. More than that, verse 11, we're called to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. You might say, okay, now we're talking this is something that I can get behind. Power. I'm ready to have some power. I'm ready to have some power exerted in my life. Is it power to overcome any obstacle? Is it power to devastate any foe? Is it power to to tear down strongholds? Is it power to go forth and conquer or perform miracles? Let's keep reading. Here's what the power is for. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience that could be rendered long-suffering with joy. Why do we need power just to make it? Life is just that hard. Why do we need power to be patient with other people? Life with other people is just that hard. That helps me so much. Have you ever 
gone through a day and said, I shouldn't be struggling with this. This is so hard. False. Your life is hard enough that you need divine power to be able to know what to do and how to proceed. That helps me. That helps me tons. We need nothing less than the power of God, according to his glorious might, to endure and be patient in daily life. You need God's power not to quit. You need God's power to be patient toward those who are against you. What's, your, what's God's will for you? You need God's power on Tuesday morning. Notice that this is God's power to endure and be patient, not God's power to make the right decision in the right moment that's going to change the course of your life. The, the course of your life will be changed as you, as you lay hold of the power of God moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision, in that rhythm of life you think doesn't really matter. No, in those moments you need the power of God so that you can just make it and endure. What's God's will for you? To get power from Him to endure through trial and hardship. What's God's will for you? To get patience and to be long-suffering with difficult people. How? Again, verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, it feels a little bit like Paul is just piling on. Not only can you not make it, and you need power from God just to be able to endure and be patient, I want you to do it with a joyful attitude. Now, tell me if you don't need to be fixed on Jesus for all that. The only way we can be joyful and endure with long-suffering is by taking our eyes off our circumstances and fixing them on Him. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that when the wheels fall off in our life that we should pretend like we're happy with everything that's happened. That's not what we're talking about. We Christians, we don't live in the land of make-believe. During times of affliction, pretending that we're not hurt all the time does nobody any, does nobody any good. We are strengthened with divine power according to His might so that we might be able to endure with joy because we have a lot to be joyful about because we have a Savior named Jesus. That's why we must fix ourselves on Jesus. Notice, Colossians doesn't encourage us to fix ourselves on our circumstances so that when something good happens, everything's up. When something bad happens, everything's down. No, we fix our eyes and our lives on Jesus. And when we do that, joy is possible. So what's God's will for you? How do you please God? By bearing fruit in every kind of good work. By growing in the knowledge of God. By gaining strength to endure with long-suffering. Notice, he doesn't also say, strengthen yourself. Did you see that? You need to be strengthened. You need to be strengthened. You are the object of the, the strengthening. You need to get strength from somewhere else. You do not have the resources within yourself to strengthen yourself. You need strength from him. And lastly, we please the Lord by giving thanks to the Father, or continually giving thanks. Now, I think I am like you. I am much more natural. I'm much more adept at finding things to complain about. Traffic, weather, 
how hot the seatbelt is when I get in the car. But the will of God is for us to be like explorers, traveling through life with scriptures as our guide, constantly looking for things to be thankful for. It's a discipline, and it's something we have to work at. We have a great many things to be thankful for. We have an inheritance with the saints in light. We are not treated as our sins deserve. We are not going to be treated as our sins deserve either now or ever. We're, we, we can know for sure that God loves us, not because we're lovable or because we've done something, but because he's decided to love us. We know God is always on our side. We know that nothing, not anything, can separate us from the love of Christ. We know that God will always give us everything we need in exactly the right moment. We know that God promises that he will work through all things for our good at every time. We know that these light and momentary afflictions are not going to be worth comparing to the glory that will be ours. We know that we will have one day no more pain, no more sadness, no more tears. And we will have eternal life, not eternal death, but eternal life forever with Jesus. What, God, what is God's will for your life? How do you please the Lord? Be about every kind of good work. Grow in the knowledge of God. Be strengthened with power. Continually give thanks. In other words, his will is probably not for you to make some big life-altering change. Maybe it is. But probably what he wants you to do is with the next step you take in your life, to look for opportunity to do good works because of all the work, the good that has been done in and through you. To grow in the knowledge of God. To be strengthened in His power and to continually give thanks. That's God's will for our lives. To have that kind of disposition that no matter what we face, no matter who we are, no matter what we're looking at, we can fix our eyes and fix ourselves on Jesus and please Him even in those mundane moments that nobody seems to notice. The knowledge of his will and the opportunity to please him comes when we take hold of those normal, natural moments. And there, in that moment, take, take the opportunity to live lives that please the Lord. That is his will. That is how we please God. That is how we can immerse ourselves in the message of Colossians. That is the first lesson we have in how to fix ourselves on Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see the opportunities we have to please you. And what we think, and what we say, and how we act, and our disposition towards other people. I pray, Lord, that you would Give us opportunity to recognize that we need your help. Lord, our temptation is not to be giving ourselves to every kind of good work, but our temptation is to give ourselves to things that we want to do. Our temptation is to grow in the knowledge of, our, of, of you know, whatever we like to do for our pastime, or be strengthened with knowledge, or to be continually... Our temptation is to be continually complaining or, or looking for things that aren't adding up and not working. But Lord, I pray that we would be a people who look to please you 
in every moment of every day. I pray that you would put within us a desire to want to please you with every step of our spiritual journey, with every walk, every step that we have in our walk with you. I pray that we would want to please you. Make us a people who are all the more and even more fixed on Jesus. Jesus, we pray you would help us to fix ourselves on you. I pray that that passion and that burning desire would dominate our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.